This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week I'm going to recommend Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. Honestly, I feel a little disingenuous recommending it because it's already so famous. Even if you don't necessarily agree with all of Diamond's ideas about what shaped world history, well, they're still pretty important, they're still culturally noteworthy, and now you finally have a chance to read them for free. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. of Japan podcast, episode 164, The Maelstrom, part 2. Today we're going to start the march to war in Manchuria. We will begin in an appropriate year for talking about the first major 20th century conflict, 1900, but in a place somewhat removed from Manchuria proper, the plains of northern China, specifically Shandong province and the surrounding area. If you don't know where Shandong is, pull up a map of China, and you'll notice there's a spit of land sticking out of the coast south of Beijing, like a finger pointing east at Korea. That's Shandong. Historically, this is one of China's most important cultural centers. The birthplace of both Confucius and Mencius, Shandong is one of the hearts of Chinese culture. However, during the late Qing dynasty, it was also endemically poor and was constantly plagued by bandits. Late in 1899, things in Shandong got particularly bad. First, a nasty drought savaged the region, causing widespread crop failures and raising the specter of that most terrible of pre-modern problems, famine. Second, European missionaries in the region started to become increasingly assertive, using the treaty rights they were guaranteed by the various unequal treaties that the Qing dynasty had been forced to sign, to, among other things, forcibly purchase land for churches and protect members of the church community from Chinese law. Christian converts were totally protected from persecution under Qing law thanks to the unequal treaties. However, this created an unforeseen problem, as criminals would often convert to Christianity to avoid being arrested. Now, not all missions were open to providing legal cover for lawbreakers. According to Joseph W. Escherich, one of the more famous scholars on this topic, German Catholic missions were generally the worst offenders because the Germans were under orders from the higher-ups to score as many converts as possible in order to prove that Germany, not France, should be the global protector of the Catholic Church. Things came to a head early in 1900, as the furious peasants of Shandong started to take up arms. They joined with existing bandit groups as well as local militias and even martial arts schools, and began storming both government offices and Christian missions. 
Before long, the violence had spread all over northern China in what became known as the Boxer Uprising, the name coming from the fact that many of the participants practiced Chinese boxing, which is to say traditional Chinese martial arts. Of course, that name, Boxer Uprising, is a bit contentious. The mainland Chinese now refer to it as the Yihechuan movement, with Yihechuan, or Fist of Harmonious Righteousness, being the name taken by many of the boxer cells. And of course, the whole uprising idea begs the question, who were they rebelling against? Certainly not the Qing dynasty, which rapidly endorsed the boxer goals of expelling foreign influence from China. But that's a whole other conversation. I will continue to use the name Boxer Uprising, but I would like you to be aware of how contentious that name is. The story of the Boxer Uprising is fascinating, and there are several fabulous books on the subject if you're interested, but for our purposes we're going to focus on what is, from the perspective of the primary uprising in North China, a bit of a sideshow. The Boxer Uprising, you see, did reach Manchuria, but it was relatively limited in scope. Manchurian boxers limited themselves to sabotage of railways and cutting telegraph lines, rather than storming foreign embassies and engaging in mass executions of Christian converts, like what was happening in northern China. Yet even this limited sabotage provided all the pretext the Russian Empire ever needed. In 1900, Manchuria was still technically a part of China, but it was very much in Russia's sphere of influence. From the Russian-built city of Harbin, Russian influence radiated outward to dominate Manchuria economically. Now the Russians had the excuse they needed to dominate Manchuria politically, too. Nicholas II, Tsar of Russia, ordered 200,000 Russian troops into Manchuria on the pretext of defending Russian property in the region. A desperate defense thrown up by the boxers and assisted by local Qing dynasty forces proved no match for the Russians. The Boxer and Qing forces were forced to fall back on scorched-earth tactics, ripping up telegraph lines and railways and blowing up bridges to slow the Russian advance. In the end, however, the Russians were able to overrun Manchuria in just over a month. This was not only a huge blow to Chinese prestige, since it involved the loss of the Manchu homeland to a foreign invader, it was also a huge boost to Russian prestige, proof that all those French loans to modernize the Russian army were paying off. Once the Russians were in Manchuria, they showed no intention of leaving. Even after an eight-nation allied army advanced on Beijing and crushed the boxers, even after the Qing dynasty signed a humiliating treaty of capitulation, the Russians refused to leave Manchuria. They now ran the place unofficially, controlling everything from Dalian to the south, all the way up to the Amur River, which supposedly marked the border between Russia and China. In Tokyo, news of the Russian advance was received with shock, disbelief, and not an insignificant amount of anger, because of events that had taken place five years earlier. Five years before the Boxer Uprising, Japan had been taking its turn kicking China while it was down in the Sino-Japanese War. Remember, that war had initially begun in Korea, but Japan's advance through the Korean Peninsula had been so blisteringly fast 
that the Chinese had been forced to abandon the peninsula after all of two engagements. Japanese forces pursued the Chinese into Manchuria and defeated them there as well. Before long, Beijing was forced to fold. In the final treaty, signed in Shimonoseki, Japan in 1895, China agreed to pay Japan a huge war indemnity to cover Japan's war costs. It agreed to abandon Korea. It agreed to give the Japanese Taiwan, and my god, that's another story we have to get to at some point. And it agreed to give the Japanese the Liaodong Peninsula in Manchuria. The Liaodong Peninsula is the little jut of land just to the west of Korea that hangs off the bottom of Manchuria. Among other things, it's home to Dalian slash Port Arthur, with its magnificent and strategic harbor, and for all of a couple of months in 1895, that incredibly strategic bit of territory was all Japan's. But it didn't last. Over in Moscow, the Russians had been eyeing Dalian as a warm water port for the Pacific Fleet, and they were not prepared to let the Japanese just grab it from under them. In this, they had two unlikely allies who joined the Russians for rather unusual reasons. Each wanted to outdo the other in sucking up to the Tsar. France, you see, was more than willing to back the territorial ambitions of its new Russian ally in East Asia. After all, France's nearest holdings were thousands of miles away in Indochina, and thus would not be threatened by the move. And of course, anything that strengthened Russia would necessarily make it more useful in a war against Germany. Germany, meanwhile, was desperately trying to convince the Russians to come back over to their side of the playing field, and to undo the damage done by Kaiser Wilhelm's refusal to renew the old Russo-German alliance of emperors. Anything that might make the Russians more receptive to the idea of jumping back over to Germany or at least staying neutral, was all to the good. And besides, every bit of energy Russia focused on the East would be energy not focused on the West, that is, not in Germany's direction. And so it was that France, Germany, and Russia combined in a triple intervention. Their ambassadors in Tokyo were given orders to present themselves to the Prime Minister and Cabinet of Japan, and to lay out their terms. Those terms were simple. Japan could keep the money, it could keep Taiwan, it could keep Korea, but Dalian and Port Arthur, and the broader expanse of the Liaodong Peninsula, those were not up for grabs. The demand for the return of Dalian and the peninsula was couched not in the language of power politics, but, if you can believe it, the language of responsible global citizenship. It would not do, the powers argued, to further destabilize an already unstable China, because doing so would threaten both the security of the Chinese people and, far more importantly, the foreign concessions held in China. At the time, Ito Hirabumi was Japan's prime minister, and he flailed about for a few months, trying to enlist the support of Great Britain and the United States in defense of Japan's position. However, America was far too occupied with increasing chaos on the Spanish-held island of Cuba, and the UK was more interested in taking advantage of the chaos in China to seize things for itself than helping out the Japanese. So late in 1895, Ito was forced to accede to new terms. The Liaodong Peninsula was returned to China, though the Japanese did manage to get another cash payment to the tune of 450 million yen to soften the blow. 
So when Russia then moved in five years later to occupy Manchuria, well, that did not go over well in Japan at all. Russia's occupation of Manchuria was very clearly a self-serving power play. All of that high-minded rhetoric about not destabilizing China was revealed for what it truly was, a self-serving band-aid designed to cover up the reality that Japan was being muscled out of the imperial game. It is, of course, easy at this juncture to feel some sympathy for the Japanese, who were in the end being ganged up on by the other great powers. Certainly that was the way the whole event was portrayed in the English-language press at the time. Yet it's worth remembering that no concern was shown for the fate of the Han Chinese, the Manchu, or any of the other peoples actually living in Manchuria. They were incidental in this scheme to the fate of their own country. So, after 1895, and more so after 1900, the circles of Japanese leadership began plotting for revenge. They would avenge the loss of Port Arthur to the Russians, and secure the northern frontier once and for all. Step one in this plan had to be to step up the size of the Japanese armed forces. By the time of the Sino-Japanese War, the Japanese Imperial Army had grown from a group of a few hundred hand-picked samurai chosen to guard the Emperor's personal residence to a modern national military. The Imperial Navy had gone from a collection of hand-me-down warships inherited from Satsuma, Choshu, and the Tokugawa Navy to a modern force 31 ships strong. However, neither of these forces was yet strong enough to fight and beat the Russians. So the army began stepping up its recruitment after the Second Sino-Japanese War. Recruits taken at this point would, to be sure, not still be under the colors when war with Russia came. Up until the 1920s, conscription periods were three years long, so a soldier taken in December 1895 would be discharged in December 1898. However, discharged soldiers would become reservists who could be called up to serve again, even in the limited capacity as home guards, while active units went to fight Russia. They could also serve as vehicles for wartime propaganda, a role that Yamagata Aritomo, the father of the Imperial Army, embraced for his former soldiers. The Navy, meanwhile, undertook an impressive program of shipbuilding designed to prepare it to go toe-to-toe with Russia's Pacific Fleet, which had now moved from Vladivostok to Port Arthur. These were in many ways the most obvious steps to gear up for war, but they were not the only ones. They do, however, have an interesting side effect that is not directly related to our story, but which I would really be remiss not to mention. And to explain this, we have to think about Japan's Meiji Constitution for a second. Article 71 of the Meiji Constitution empowered the cabinet, which, remember, at this point, was appointed, not elected to simply roll over a previous year's budget if the Diet, or the Parliament, refused to pass a new one. The idea was to put in place a safeguard which would prevent the Diet from engaging in what we might call a government shutdown. The Diet could not force the Cabinet to listen to it by refusing to open up the National Purse. Or at least, that was the theory. However, during this time of military buildup, the cabinet found itself needing larger and larger budgets every single year to fund its larger and larger military. Rolling over the old budget just wouldn't cut it anymore. And in the diet, clever politicians would seize the opportunity to say, sure, we'll give you more money 
if you give us an actual say in government policy. Party politicians would thus seize the opening provided by the pre-war military buildup and begin to lay the groundwork for, if not a fully democratic government, since universal male suffrage would not be implemented until 1925, and of course female suffrage not until 1947, well, at least a more democratic government. But this series is not about the shifts in Japanese political culture. It's a series about war, and Japan's war preparations were not limited to the realm of military buildups. After all, even with a massively scaled-up fleet and army, three and one is just not very good odds. If Japan went to war against Russia isolated, it would run the risk of France and Germany weighing in again on the Russian side. Even if, as seemed likely, neither France nor Germany committed troops or ships to fight the Japanese, they might still close their ports to Japanese vessels or freeze Japanese funds in their territory, or some other kind of hostile act. Simply put, Japan was isolated and it needed allies. But where could it get them? The answer, it turned out somewhat fortuitously, was in London, home and nerve center of the British Empire. At the time of the Meiji Restoration, the United Kingdom was unquestionably the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. Its possessions sprawled across the world, and its fleets, more powerful than the next two largest navies combined, ensured the security of the shipping lanes that kept the empire connected. By 1900, however, the British Empire was feeling the pressure. In addition to longtime imperial rivals like France, new competitors for global empire were emerging. In Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm looked to put the finishing touches on the glorious rise of Germany, by assembling an overseas empire and a navy to compete with Britain's. Russia's expanding empire brought it into contact with British zones of influence in Afghanistan and Iran. The United States, long relatively isolationist, was now expanding into the Philippines and the Caribbean. And at this challenging moment, Britain's financial resources were beginning to fail her. The constant pressure of the naval arms race, combined with more global competition from the other powers meant that Britain's financial cushion was beginning to weaken. The calculations of power pointed in one simple direction. Britain now needed allies to preserve its empire. It just couldn't do so alone. This was more of a break with the past than it might seem. In years gone by, Britain had relied upon temporary wartime alliances. If, say, France was looking to become the preponderant power in Europe, the UK would forge alliances with its rivals and attempt to tip the scales. The British had no long-term allies, and were generally more than willing to throw old allies under the bus if said allies became a new potential threat. Thus the nickname thrown about by the enemies of Britain, Perfidious Albion. The British, it was said, had no real friends and were more than willing to play dirty. But in this case, the British had no choice, and Japan was a good option for a potential ally. Japan's concentrated power in Asia meant that an alliance with the Japanese would help secure Britain's Asian possessions. For the Japanese, meanwhile, an alliance with the UK would help secure Japan against intervention by Germany or France. Both the French and Germans were very concerned with where the UK might land in a conflict between a Franco-Russian alliance and Germany. 
neither one was willing to risk alienating the British by going after a power allied to the UK. To put it simply, both the French and the Germans wanted Russia in their corner, and were willing to go to some lengths to make that happen. But both the French and the Germans wanted the UK in their corner way more than they wanted the Russians, and neither one was willing to risk giving up the big prize to gain a smaller one. So the logic of an Anglo-Japanese alliance was pretty clear once he sat down and thought about it, but the whole thing still had to be negotiated. The first inkling that the two sides had common interests came in 1900 in the wake of the Boxer Rebellion. Russia's successful seizure of Port Arthur made the British pretty nervous, since one more naval power in the region of China meant one more threat to the British position in China, and especially to the very valuable colony of Hong Kong. In Japan, meanwhile, Britain's refusal to join the Triple Intervention made Britain very popular, especially with the nationalist press which controlled most of Japan's news market. Britain was also very popular in Japan because it had been the first great power to sign a treaty with the Japanese, which ended the old unequal treaties. These vestiges of the Tokugawa era soldiered on into the early 20th century, but in 1894 Britain became the first country in the world to voluntarily end its special privileges in Japan though the United States did immediately follow suit. As you might imagine, this did a lot to make the British very popular in Tokyo. However, reservations remained on both sides. The British, for their part, were wary of a potential rivalry between the U.S. and Japan, since the American seizure of the Philippines had turned it into an Asian power almost overnight. At this point, the so-called special relationship, which is to say the unusually close working relationship of the UK and the US in international politics, it was already in its embryonic stages, and the British were simply not willing to jeopardize an alliance with the US to secure an ally of unproven value. In Tokyo, meanwhile, there were those who still believed that peace was possible. Ito Hirabumi, for his part, hung on to the idea that the Russians could be convinced to negotiate, and he and his allies pressed for continuing negotiations. Ito had no particular love of the Russians. He simply believed that time was on Japan's side, that Japan's economic growth would only put it further and further ahead of Russia. Besides, the British were wrapped up in the Boer War in South Africa. The so-called greatest empire on Earth was having a hard time laying the smackdown on a bunch of hick farmers from the ass end of nowhere, so tell me again how helpful they're going to be against Russia. Ito was also put off by British hopes that the scope of the treaty could be extended to India. The British wanted some assurances of Japanese aid in case of an attack on the crown jewel of their empire. Ito, however, considered India well outside of Japan's zone of interest. Given the job of smoothing over these differences was one Hayashi Tadasu, the Japanese ambassador in London. Over the course of 1901, he worked with the sitting government of the Prime Minister Lord Salisbury to smooth things out. As a result, by December of that year, the two sides had a working arrangement, helped by the fact that the Boer War started to swing in the direction of British victory. The basic premise of the Anglo-Japanese alliance, as these men worked it out, is already somewhat familiar to us on the show. 
First, both sides promised to remain neutral in any one-on-one fight between the signatories and someone else. In other words, if Japan got into a war, the British would not leap to their defense, but they would also not help Japan's enemies. However, if either the UK or Japan faced a war against more than one great power, the other would enter to protect its ally. So, if the Russians were successful in bringing Germany or France, or both, into a conflict with Japan, that would automatically make the UK enter the war on Japan's side. But of course, this was also still the age of imperialism, so the Anglo-Japanese alliance included a section recognizing Japanese spheres of influence in Korea and North China, and British spheres of influence in South China. India, just like Ito Hirabumi wanted, was kept off the table altogether. Shortly before Christmas 1901, Ito Hirabumi himself arrived in London to celebrate the approaching completion of the treaty. He met the English king, Edward VII, who, among other things, gave Ito the Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath, and if you're wondering, the name of the decoration comes from an old ceremony associated with knighthood that involved ritual bathing. The mayor of London threw a banquet in Ito's honor as well. Ito, in response to a toast from the mayor, spoke at great length about the long friendship between the UK and Japan. After all, remember that the British had backed Choshu and Satsuma in their rebellion against the Tokugawa, and were thus partially responsible for how the whole Boshin War played out. Ito also spoke of his happy memories studying at University College London in the 1860s. He concluded, quote, It is only natural in me to entertain a sincere hope as to the further continuation of our friendly feelings and mutual sympathies in the future, that these friendly feelings and mutual sympathies which have existed between us in the past shall be daily more strongly cemented in the future. End quote. Not exactly fourscore and seven years ago, but it got a solid minute of cheering from the crowd, according to the Times of London. The reaction in Japan was just as happy. By signing an alliance with the Japanese, the British had accepted the Japanese as their equal in importance, a theme echoed in every newspaper in the country. The British populace, too, was more than pleased with their new ally. Punch, for example, published a cartoon upon the renewal of the treaty in 1905, showing a Japanese and British soldier shaking hands, accompanied by a quote from Rudyard Kipling. Quote, O east is east, and west is west, but there is neither east nor west, border nor breed nor birth, when two strong men stand face to face, though they come from the ends of the earth. End quote. So the Japanese had a larger military, an ally in their corner, perhaps the best ally of them all, and thus finally had a fighting chance against Russia. However, that didn't mean that everybody in Tokyo was 100% behind plunging into a war all willy-nilly. First, let's try and talk things out like reasonable adults. Next time, Japan and Russia will try to cut a deal like reasonable adults. It will go about as well as you expect. I say next time, however, rather than next week, because, as you've probably noticed, it's time for high school to start up again, which means it's time for me to start my new job. It's very exciting, I'm looking forward to it, but I'm not entirely sure how much time or energy it's going to leave me, 
So for the month of September, at least, I'm going to be switching to an alternating schedule. I'll publish one episode every other week. I reserve the right to keep the schedule up. If it turns out that my new work schedule just doesn't work with publishing every week, we're going to see how things play out. So, I ask your acceptance and understanding as we move into a phase where the schedule for the History of Japan podcast is going to be a bit less predictable than it previously has been. Thank you very much for your understanding, and hey, thanks again for listening. Special thanks this week to Ian Mead for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks' time for The Maelstrom, Part 3.